0: Well, if you uh, saw the announcements this morning at the outset of the service, um, we're excited for Easter coming up in just a few weeks. Um, and uh, in addition to obviously celebrating the resurrection, this great victory that we, um, that we hallmark every year, um, as a reminder, it's the very foundation of our faith. Without it, um, what we're doing is it's useless. And so again, just like we did on Christmas Eve, hopefully slightly warmer than Christmas Eve, our 1030 service is gonna be out on the front lawn. You're all invited to that. That obviously increases our capacity exponentially. Um, and we would love to, to have you join in that. The nine o'clock service will be here indoors as well as our five o'clock service on Saturday night will be indoors as well. And so um, not only are you invited, but we encourage you to bring a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, whoever, as we celebrate um, the resurrection together and we're looking forward to that. Um, I want you to think about a time in life when you felt um, homesick, like when you could really remember that sense, like in your gut, of like longing to be home. When I was 14 years old, um, and I question the the parenting behind this now, but um, I, I took a summer long, like 14 week long mission trip. Um, I didn't know any of my adult leaders. I wasn't going, none of the other students that were there. Um, my parents dropped me off in Merritt Island, Florida for two weeks of training. And then I spent my summer living in a tent on Bermuda, in Bermuda, at uh, uh, African Methodist Episcopal camp on one of the islands there and working and, and doing all this stuff. And I, I loved it. It was an amazing adventure. But there were moments when, when my desire for home were almost like overwhelming. Right, when you were washing your clothes in, in a bucket and you thought, man, I remember when my mom used to do this sort of thing, right? Like, or when you were eating like your 500th peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you just longed for something more. And I think most of us can relate to that experience to one degree or another, or if you're younger, you will someday. That, that point in time will come. And this, well, today we're beginning this series uh, called "A Living Hope," where we're looking at Peter's letters to the church. First, First Peter. In fact, what we're going to do is we'll do two consecutive back-to-back teaching series that'll take us through the spring on First Peter. We'll have an intermission in there for Palm Sunday and Easter, and then we're going to dive into Second Peter immediately following that. So that's going to kind of take us into the beginning of the summer. And what we discover is Peter, at the very outset of his letter, as he's writing to the church, begins to speak to their sense of of homesickness. And he tries to to speak into that with this experience, this promise of a living hope. But before we dive into the text, I want to take just a minute to talk a little bit about Peter. Peter. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Peter. Gretchen and I were joking just a little while ago. Gretchen's kind of our resident expert on Peter. His life is, is compelling in a lot of ways. His story is familiar to us. It, it, it rings true to us because Peter, we can see ourselves a lot of times in Peter. Peter was this obscure fisherman living by the Sea of Galilee when this itinerant rabbi comes by named Jesus and says, hey, I want, I want you to be one of my disciples. And Peter, like he's sort of his personality, responds immediately and passionately, drops everything and, and, and leaves to be a disciple of Jesus. And that kind of describes Peter, right? He is passionate to the point of being impetuous at times. He's got really great moments when Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, who do you say I am? And he looks and he says, you're, you're Jesus, the Messiah, the, the son of God. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. In fact, on that confession, on those words, I'm going to build my, my entire church. And then he's got his not so great moments, right? When he's in the garden and, and they've come to arrest Jesus and he grabs a sword and cuts somebody's ear off. And Jesus is looking and says, you're missing it, man. You're missing the point and reattaches the guy's ear. But most famously, right? When he, after making these bold claims that he would defend Jesus at every moment, then he sees Jesus in his trial and, and people come up and say, weren't you one of the disciples? And he's like, Jesus who? Three times he, he denies him. Peter's a bit of a mixed bag. And I, I think that's what we find relatable. We connect to the moments when he gets it right, and and we connect to the moments when he totally messes up. It feels familiar to us. Following the resurrection of Jesus, there's this incredible restorative moment with with Jesus and and Peter, where the betrayal is, is confronted, and Jesus just lovingly restores Peter back into relationship. Then at Pentecost, the the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles, and and Peter delivers this amazing and compelling, really the first like public proclamation of the gospel message of a risen Jesus. Thousands of people respond to Peter's message. Remember, this is just some obscure fisherman who lived by the Sea of Galilee pre-Jesus, and thousands of people are hanging on his words and responding to his message. He becomes one of the apostles, one of the the leaders of the early church, and that doesn't go perfectly either. There's some some issues that, that Paul eventually confronts with Peter. And then this letter that we are going to dive into, this is some 30 years after the life of Christ. In fact, it's, it's probably, uh, well not probably, it is approaching the end of Peter's life, and this is when he writes to the church, and this is what he says. Let's turn to 1 Peter. If you're not familiar in the New Testament, 1 Peter is towards the end is there's Hebrews James then you see 1st and 2nd Peter 1st 2nd and 3rd John and then there is Jude and Revelation and we're going to pick things up we're going to look at the first 9 verses today this is what Peter writes to the church he says Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus Galatia Cappadocia Asia Bithynia "...who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade." glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want to just work through this text I want to start right there at the, at the outset by, by looking at what Peter, how Peter identifies his audience as God's elect exiles, as God's elect exiles. I, I don't know if you've um, had one of those moments in your life where you get totally turned upside down and you feel disoriented. I, uh, I, I was swimming with a friend once in, in Puerto Rico, and we were out, and the, the, the waves were pretty turbulent um and but there was a lot of people out in the water and i thought it was safe and so we were out there and i was trying to like body surf and i just caught this wave and it just destroyed me like it turned me every which direction and i remember it was only momentarily but i had this sense of like i did not know what way was up like i had been thrown against the sand at some point in time so my i was kind of like a little dizzy at the atonement and sent every which direction and it wasn't until my feet hit the sand that I had some sense of direction into which way was up and where I needed to go right this here what what Peter offers the church at the outset of this letter is a sense of which way is up it's something to reference off of and I if you're anything like me I, I feel like most often when I'm reading a letter like this I read right past this introduction it's like, this is okay. This is who's writing this. This is who he's sending it to. Let's kind of get to the good stuff here. But, but Peter is specific in the words that he uses when he addresses this letter. Look again at verses one and two. And, the, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. To God's elect exiles who've been scattered. David Helm in his commentary on on 1 Peter says that those three words are, they serve as as floor joists, if you will, for the entire letter. That they're, they're meant to undergird and support the entire message that Peter wants them to understand about life in Christ in the situation they find themselves in. Peter's writing this letter to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. This is a modern day Turkey. I brought a, a map just to kind of like orient ourselves a little bit, but you can see the different providences there. And what's interesting is we don't know specifically if If Peter has traveled to these places and he knows them by name, of course, we know Paul has and establishes churches throughout their era. If if Peter's just writing this letter as a leader of the church at this time, but he addresses who this is to and he understands their circumstances. And so to the group, because what we do know at this time is that this is a, a season of intensifying persecution in the life of the church. This is in early 60s AD. Nero is now emperor in Rome, and it is well documented his his persecution, his hatred of of Christians. Paul and, and Peter are most likely, and and some speculate that this is actually written post the death of Paul, when Peter knows that his death is imminent. And he wants to he wants to speak into the life of the church in the midst of of this persecution. That's that's speculation, but it's in that window of time where being a follower of Jesus was, was literally risky. You, it was a lot that was at stake. And so if you're a part of the church at that time, your, your sense, your feeling must be like this, the very thing that you placed your faith in, the thing that defined your sense of purpose and identity, all of it is under assault everything is falling apart and so it begs the question for us how do we understand and perceive ourselves when life is falling apart for us how do we think about how do we understand our purpose when things are not going according to plan or when we're experiencing genuine suffering here peter peter begins by grounding their their sense of identity, their purpose, in in light of what is unfolding around them in the truth of who they are, they're God's elect exiles who've been scattered throughout Asia Minor. And let's take a moment just to kind of parse that out a little bit. That word elect, that, that literally means chosen. So if we were to do kind of a word study throughout scripture, we would see that 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 phrase describes the love of God. The sense of being selected or set apart. Like We are familiar with this, right? Like in in human relationships, when we feel like somebody chooses to be in relationship with us, we feel the joy, the love of that. Or when somebody chooses not to be in relationship with us, we feel the sting of, of that rejection, I don't know how often you stop to consider this or you think about this. You stop to perceive or understand how God views you. But, but soak that in for just a minute. When Peter wants the church to understand who they are, he's saying you're, you're his elect. You're the, you've, he chose you. He loves you. Like this is, this is powerful and it's meaningful and it is the story of God's people from the very beginning. You're loved and set apart. And of course, this is great news. It's, 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 it's incredibly encouraging, but we are chosen, we're elect for what? To be exiles. We're, we are elect exiles, the chosen ones to live away from home. Homesickness, therefore, is, it is a byproduct of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, just a few verses down in, in verse 17 in 1 Peter 1, Peter says it this way. Since, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your life, your time, as foreigners here in reverent fear. Like he's saying, you are, you are in exile you are the loved ones of God living away from home. And again, it's this state of exile, the followers of Jesus. We, we're not intended to understand this as, as negative or in a, as some sort of, um, it's not punitive. It's not as if it's the result of some disobedience. In fact, I would argue that Peter is trying to help us understand this as normative. And I think we forget this. We're not, we're not intended to feel at home here. This isn't intended to feel like like our place of of belonging or our home. We're, as followers of Jesus, there is something inside of us that, that recognizes that this is not ultimately where we will call home. And again, we, we discover this all the way from the beginning of, of the story that God writes in humanity, from the point in time when he calls Abram and he says, I want to take your family and I'm going to take you away from your home and as an exile, I'm going to build with you, I'm going to make this new covenant family and you're going to be the father of that, and Sarah's going to be the mother of that and your kids are going to be the recipients of that. And we're going to be a people in exile. And then he says, you are a people who are scattered. This is the Greek word, uh, despora. You're the ones, like a a farmer who scatters seeds. You are purposefully dispersed. Peter wants them to understand. Peter, Peter looks at this entire letter, and he's reminding the church that they are the loved ones of God, living away from home, Their ultimate home, according to God's purposeful design. You are the chosen ones of God, intentionally sent by God to live as resident aliens in your city and on your street and in your community. To do so, he says, in faithful obedience to Christ with the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We're the chosen elect scattered in Batavia and Geneva and St. Charles and Elburn and Sugar Grove and wherever you came from, North Aurora and Aurora and all, all these places. Whatever your spot is on that street, it's God's purposeful design to send out his people in other words, to both the, the, the original audience and to, to us, the church, Peter begins by saying, you are where you are, when you are, because of God's good plans. This isn't, this isn't an accident that you're here right now. According to Peter, we, we owe our full identity as elect exiles to the mysterious plan of God. And so in the midst of that, understanding that, now Peter roots the church in this promise of a living hope. He roots the church in the promise of a living hope. Back in verse 3 now, he writes this. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Here, Peter is elevating their perspective a bit. Again, if you've ever um, done much hiking, that sort of thing, if you've ever been like in a really densely wooded area, right? you get you it becomes very hard to see or discover where you're at because of the density of of the trees and the forest and everything that's around you. I've taken students you've heard me talk about this before but when we're in Ecuador we've often gone down to the the jungle areas and I've never experienced density like this. Like I remember one time we were hiking through there and and um, one of the leaders was kind of catching the students up together. He said, hey, take this group and follow the trail and, and get up there with the other students. And I was like, what trail? Like, there, you, like, he could see it, but to me, it just looked like everything looked the same. But what was interesting is the house that we stayed at was up on the side of a mountain a bit. And this is a, a picture, like, you could just see, like, above the canopy, right, of the jungle, And so it it altered your perspective. You got this sense of kind of the layout and where you're at. But then in addition to that, there was this one lookout that was up on the very side of the cliff. And from this cliff, you could see just this entire Amazon basin. Bring up that, yeah. Like as far as the eye could see, jungle. You got this, you saw the rivers and you saw where it was leading. You had a whole new view on what you were just in. See, Peter, this is what Peter's doing with the church. He's trying to elevate their perspective. Peter's taking the people up to the peak. He's giving them eyes to see through the lens of, of this living hope. In fact, as we, as we study this letter from Peter over the next few weeks, I want to encourage you, and we as a church are going to practice this together, but we want to we commit verse 3 to memory. In fact, let me put that back up on the screen real quick. We wanna take time just because this perspective of what Peter is offering us in verse three is so formative to our lives and every moment that this is one that is worth just having on default setting where, where we just start to, to understand this promise of the living hope where we can recite it and speak into our circumstances and our situation. So over the next couple weeks when we're together, we're going we're gonna to practice this together. We'll read it out loud together. And maybe you're brand new to, to Bible memorization. Maybe this is something that comes easy for you. If you're anything like me, it does not come easy for you. And yet we'll, we'll do this together. And I think this will speak encouragement uh, to us over these next few weeks and hopefully far beyond that. You know, it's interesting. At no point in time in this letter is Peter ever going to diminish their suffering. He's never going to try to downplay it. In fact, he'll, he'll acknowledge this is, is real. But what he does do is he roots their confidence for the future. This, this idea of a cure for their homesickness and this, this living hope that is validated, that's fine, it's, 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 um, it's guaranteed, if you will, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's this chain reaction that unfolds in these verses. He says, in his great mercy, we have new birth. Through God's mercy, we don't, it's not just this, we're not an improved version of our former self, right? We're in his great mercy, we have new birth. Christianity, the message of the gospel, isn't that we can spruce ourselves up a bit, it's that the old self is dead, and that we have a new life in Christ. This is why you'll hear sometimes in, in Christians talk about the idea of, of being born again. New birth as, as Peter refers to it. Look at, at John's encounter with Nic- or John, uh, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter three. But this new birth, this 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 new person in Christ has been born into a living hope. So our confidence isn't isn't on how things are going. It's not based on our experience. It's not, we are by definition, we are living as God's elect exiles, our promises on God's ability and the security of our future that's been secured for us by the resurrection. He is the living hope. Present suffering and brokenness and Pain and and things that we see in our world all the time—that we look around us and we say, "This isn't right," and it shouldn't be this way. Or what I'm experiencing right now—how do I reconcile this? He's saying that doesn't have the final word. That's not how the story ends. Right? And our our assurance of this, our confidence in this, is backed by the fact of what we're going to celebrate on Easter—that on that moment. That stone was rolled away, that tomb was empty, and Jesus was alive. Saying, this is your living hope, this is your confidence. And it's a confidence for an inheritance. Look again at this chain reaction. An inheritance that can never perish, or spoil, or fade. And think about the, that promise for a second when you've just been called an exile. Like exiles, the, 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 def, the, the definition of it is you have, you've been... Sent out from security, from home. Like for, if you're in an ancient Near East culture at, in 2000 years ago, you've just left everything that guaranteed your future. Your inheritance is, is no longer with you. And he says, But that's for you, your inheritance. Your inheritance is secured in such a way that it will never spoil or fade or perish. And it says, In fact, it's shielded by God's power for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. This is the promise that he's shaping, that he's forming into us as children of God. And you see this this perspective shift here. Let me take you up. Let me, let me get you out of the density of, of your circumstances, of what you're facing right now. Let me show you the beauty of what's in front of you. He's reminding them that the, the promise of their future has been secured by the resurrection of Jesus. This is a living hope. And a living hope ultimately then produces an enduring hope. An enduring hope. First Peter, verse six now. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, when Peter starts this letter, he, he, he really starts with this, um, it begins with like these soaring theological explanations of identity and purpose and uh, a living hope. But here as he kind of gets into verse 6, you almost, you can feel that pastoral side of him coming out. Like his heart for the people in the midst of circumstances that are incredibly painful. Suffering grief and all kinds of trials, he said. I want to just, I want to highlight a couple things here real quickly. I think it's important, and, and, and we could unpack this in a lot more detail, but it's important for us to understand that when the New Testament's writers talk about suffering and trials and difficulty and pain, they do so in such a way that they expect it. They're always preparing the church for the experience of suffering and in at times even persecution. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to have lunch with one of my former students when I was a youth pastor, and we are catching up, and I had known that he had kind of walked away from the faith and, and we were sitting down and, and talking and he wanted to share his story with me and I wanted to hear it. He was just, he was talking about how his experience in life, the, the difficulty and the pain of, of things that he had gone through, and I think perhaps even more so looking at other people's lives around him and feeling like it was, it was, exponentially more on him than it was on his others Um, he looked at he he couldn't reconcile his experience with the idea of of a loving gracious God who is personally involved in his life and and I was empathetic to that we were we were talking about it and and but one of the things I began to discover is that he had an expectation that what God had promised him or what he would experience in relationship with him was going to be marginally comfortable it was, it was going to be a certain level of like, uh, yeah, you can, you can experience some difficulty or hardships to this degree, but what he had experienced was beyond that, and so therefore he couldn't reconcile that with, with who God is. And the New Testament is, is, it's just not written that way. In fact, any theology that, that suggests that, that the follower of Jesus is going to be comfortable or that our lives are going to be easy it's we've we've corrupted what what the new testament authors are saying in fact first peter in chapter four he says don't be surprised by this is verse 12 he says dear friends do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you he's like don't don't be caught off guard by this In fact, it says it it comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes, suffering, grief, and all kinds of trials. That that, that literally means like multicolored trials. It comes at us in a million different ways. This is an unavoidable part of our experience as exiles. It's it's part of what produces in us the sense of of homesickness. But Peter then, and, and this is what I want us to see he gives us perspective again on this because he says it's, it's temporary. He says, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief. This is, this is why Peter says we can greatly rejoice because of our living hope. It's a living hope that produces an enduring hope because the living hope lasts, it, it, it lasts beyond our suffering. And again, I, I don't, I do not want to misconstrue this because for Peter and for that early church, he's not saying this is going to be over next week. I remember last March when, when things were shutting down, I was like, okay, girls, my girls, I was like, you're gonna have like an extended spring break. You're gonna have two weeks off, spring break, you're gonna be back in class. I, I was off slightly, right? Like Peter's, Peter's promise here is not like this is going to end shortly. He, these things, this, could, this could be your entire life. could be marked by these things. But your entire life is just a little while compared to the promise of the future hope. It's limited. It's temporary. And then he says it's, it's, it's purposeful. In verse 7, these have come... So that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. Peter says these these things refine our faith. It's it's the proving ground of genuine faith. In fact, I don't have this on the screen, but if we turn back to James, just before 1 Peter, he says it this way. This is James chapter one. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Peter's not arguing that the cause of our suffering is, is God, but he's rather saying that God will use, he will work in our suffering for his ultimate glory and to refine us. He'll use it to shape us, to form us, to be a a body of people who more closely resemble our Savior. It doesn't make pain and, and suffering and difficulty and heartache go away. It doesn't make it easy. But it does make it purposeful. And Peter wraps this up by just encouraging him. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. He affirms their faith. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter starts this letter by rooting them in a living, enduring hope, by rooting their identity as God's elect exiles scattered among the nations for his purpose and for his glory. As we continue through this letter, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and as we continue to work our way through 1 Peter, we'll discover that that one of the ways Peter helps us as the church understanding that is constantly bringing us back to the example of Christ. In fact, he'll he'll talk about the humiliation of Christ, the suffering of Christ, what he endured before he ultimately was glorified. And and he'll say D- our model as Jesus followers is based in and who he is we should expect it and it's one of the reasons that we as a church come back to the table together I want to invite you to take the communion elements this morning Um, there is a little piece of cellophane at the top if you peel that back it will reveal the wafer but one of the reasons that we come to the table as the body of Christ is to be reminded of his suffering to be reminded that we as his followers will experience things in our life that are painful and difficult. And yet, in the midst of that, we come back to our living hope. That the one who looked at his disciples and said, this is my body that I will give for you. This is my blood that I'll shed for you. He did so knowing that in just a few short days, he would conquer that grave. That tomb would be empty, and then our hope would be secure, that we would be guaranteed backed by his accomplishment on our behalf.